we're away from the show this week, but we have a fantastic replay for you. In fact, this may be one of my favorite interviews that we did in 2021. The start of spring was only a few days ago. So to honor the beauty of the natural world around us, we talked to scientist, activist, and author Sarah Dykeman, who rode her bike across Mexico and the U.S. and back following the monarch butterfly migration. We interviewed her in 2021 about the story of her adventure told in her book, Bicycling with Butterflies, My 10,201-Mile Journey Following the Monarch Migration. We hope you enjoy this, and we'll be back next week with an all-new episode. I'm Carrie. And I'm Amy. And you are listening to The Perks of Being a Book Lover. This is a show where two friends, that would be us, chat about books and reading with another book lover. And we find book lovers everywhere. Authors, poets, librarians, book club members, booksellers, theater artists, and teachers, to name just a few. And there's no denying that reading people are the coolest people that we know. So this week, we're focusing on butterflies and biking in book form. And our guest is Sarah Dykeman. She is an adventurer and wildlife biologist whose focus is primarily amphibians. Several years ago, however, she felt a calling to bring awareness to the plight of the monarch butterfly. So she took her adventure spirit and migrated on her bike along with the monarch from Mexico to Canada and back again. Her 10,000-mile journey is the focus of her memoir slash environment slash adventure slash nature book titled Bicycling with Butterflies. But before we talk to Sarah, Carrie, let's talk. We have something exciting. We, we have a big milestone this week. That I didn't remember. Go ahead. Yeah. yeah. Well, know. you know, I'm glad that I'm not your spouse because I bet you're <laughs> bad about anniversaries. I am totally bad. But so is my spouse. So we're in good company. <laughs> Then you're made for each other. We are. This is our two-year anniversary. Woo! So, woohoo, yay us. And I still love doing it as much as I did in the beginning, Carrie. Oh, I'm not I'm not getting you a gift, though. Okay, that's fine. I don't, I don't do gifts <laughs> for anniversaries. <laughs> Just the fact that I haven't run away screaming is gift enough. <laughs> do you remember on our one-year anniversary, we had your daughter interview us? Oh, my gosh. Yeah, do you remember that was, how that went? That was exciting. Now <laughs> now we need to get another of my unenthusiastic children or my unenthusiastic spouse to interview us. <laughs> or not. We can just or say, not. or just say happy anniversary to each other and be done with it. That works. <laughs> well, you've also had another big milestone besides... The podcast anniversary. I have. So my youngest child, my daughter, just graduated from high school a couple days ago. And so I feel a little bit fancy free, Carrie. I no longer have any school-age children. And while some people that might make sad, that sounds horrible. I'm not a bad mother, I promise, but it doesn't make me sad. I am ready for them all to be young adults. I don't have to fill out all those papers, buy all the school supplies, just have to think about school anymore. And so I'm happy. I'm a little envious, which actually makes me the bad mother because I still have an 11-year-old and a 13-year-old and a 17-year-old. So I will be doing school-age children for seven more years. Yeah. It is bittersweet to see my last one graduate, but she is going to be going to college close to our home. She is going to be living in a dorm, not with us, but I suspect that I will still see her quite often, especially when she wants to do her laundry. So <laughs> or food, get food. <laughs> or get food. Or maybe she feels bad. She'll need mom. Or actually right. dad. Maybe she goes to dad. Sometimes. Yeah. Sometimes. Because he will sometimes give her stuff that I won't give her. So uh, I still suspect that I will see her plenty, but it was a big milestone. So are you ready to talk to Sarah? I'm ready. Let's do it. Okay. Sarah, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for inviting me here. Sarah, I saw your book talk that you did with Coffee Tree Books maybe a month and a half ago, and I was enthralled by the journey that you made from Mexico to Canada to Mexico again. And 
then I thought I have to read that book. And I have. You were so kind to agree to talk with us today. So I can't wait for you to tell us all about your journeys. First of all, though, before we get into the meat of that, tell us a little bit about your childhood, where you grew up. You know, you've always been into wildlife and animals and nature, but were you also a reader? My mom was a reader. My mom read to my brother and I every single day. And in fact, my brother became an English teacher. He teaches high school English in Portland, Oregon. And he credits my mom for just showing us what it means to be a reader. When she wasn't reading to us, she was always, you know, reading her own books. And and I, I think we just kind of picked that up by watching her. And I grew up in the suburbs of Kansas City on the Kansas side. And it's funny because I always did love animals. But the, the funny thing is I had a very limited interaction with them. You know, I, I had a cat <laughs> and I had a lot of beady babies. And <laughs> I was always fascinated by animals and I just was really empathetic to anim- animals. So like even the beanie babies, I have a hilarious memory of looking at a beanie baby that was like sad because I wasn't reading my book at night out loud so they could hear it. <laughs> but I had this like imaginary button I could press so that the Beanie Babies could hear the story, but I didn't have to read it out loud. They could read my mind. Um, oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, pretty, pretty good, huh? Yeah, but I, I always loved animals and I raised frogs when I was a kid. I, I, I just love animals so much. They're way easier to get along with than people. And there's just so many interesting little secrets out there waiting to be discovered. So I'm curious, when you were choosing books when you were a kid, did you always like gravitate towards books about animals? I didn't really. And in fact, one of the books that I think was the most influential in my childhood was The Boxcar Children. After the first book, that's kind of like little mysteries, but it's about four kids and their parents die and they think their grandparents are really bad. So they run away and they live in a boxcar or they find like this little trash mound scavenged things to survive and they eat berries and the oldest kid gets a job and he buys milk and bread and gets nails and unbends them. And I swear that like somehow I've always been just wanting to go for that level of independence. And I love making do with less than perfect conditions. I think that's why I love stealth camping like I do on my bike tours. And my bike is definitely a, a bit of a trash heap. But it gets the job done, and I really think the boxcar children may have had a part of that. So you've written a book that's called Bicycling with Butterflies, My 10,201-Mile Journey Following the Monarch Migration. So could you give our listeners a a little summary of the book? Well, the, the, the title is pretty on the nose, Bicycling with Butterflies. It's a trip about a bicycle ride following the monarch butterflies. Uh, my trip was a 10,201-mile bike ride following the eastern population of the monarchs from Mexico to Canada and back. And, and the goal of my bike ride was to be a voice for the monarch and to raise the alarm bells about their population decline and to help p- invite people to be part of the solution by, by planting native plants, including native milkweed plants, which is the only food source of the monarch caterpillar, and do it in a fun way. I, I often called my trip a publicity stunt. Because I wasn't actually doing a whole lot to, to help the monarch on a really direct level. I wasn't planting the food they need. I wasn't giving them the habitat they needed. But I was the spotlight to say, hey, look over here. Like Everyone can be part of the solution. And about halfway through my trip, I realized, wow, like people care about what I'm saying. And I have a lot to say. And I have a lot to say about this ride and about the monarch. And so I committed about halfway through my trip to writing a book. So was there a particular incident or something that inspired this particular journey with the monarchs? It's hard to say exactly. I was biking through Mexico in 2013 with a friend. We were nearly done with a year-long bike tour that started in Bolivia and South America. We, by, the, by the time we got to Mexico, we were pretty tired and we were pretty done with biking. And our goal was to get to the United States. And we got really, really close to where the monarchs overwinter. But looking at a map, it was like the monarchs live about 10,000 feet above sea level. So to get to them by bike is quite a slog. 
And it was April. And by April, most of the monarchs are usually gone. So we looked at the topography and we looked at the calendar and we said, let's do this another time. Well, as I continued to bike, that kind of just sat in my mind and it simmered for about a year. And eventually it went from like wanting to return to see the monarchs in Mexico to biking with them. And I think that part came because I had been doing these adventures where I connect to schools and like I'd canoed the Missouri River with some friends and visited schools along the way. I'd biked to every state in the United States and visited schools along the way. So I'd been linking my adventures to schools to kind of showcase to kids the possibilities and the, the fun and the excitement of science and adventure and conservation. And the monarch just, it kept showing itself to be like the perfect teacher and the perfect traveling companion to go into schools because the monarch already was being utilized by teachers to teach these important lessons in science and conservation and connection. So it just, it, it felt meant to be. For those who may not be familiar with the monarch butterfly migration, so they start out in Mexico, like in a couple of different areas, the way you describe it in the book, and they're just covering the trees. I mean, it's quite a sight. Yes. So there's a bunch of colonies in Mexico, and most of them are located in the Monarch Biosphere Butterfly Reserve. And this is federal land that's protected, but people still live on it. So it's a little bit of a, a balance between giving humans what they need and giving butterflies what they need. But where the monarchs are, they're clustered in these trees, like I said, about 10,000 feet above sea level. And it's pretty much all the monarchs that are born between the Rocky Mountains and the Atlantic Ocean. So if you can imagine, that is a, a lot of space. And then they're all funneled to this tiny plot of land in Mexico. And so they're highly concentrated and they form these dense clusters. And they'll actually bend the branches under their collective weight. It takes four butterflies to equal the weight of a dime, and hmm. their collective weight has been known to break branches of these mighty pine trees and oyamelfer trees. It's really spectacular, and the best part is when the sun hits a colony or hits a cluster in a colony, it will warm them up, and since monarchs are cold-blooded, they are, they're pretty inactive until they get, reach a certain temperature. So when they reach their, their flight threshold to be able to fly, they'll explode into the sky. And you'll look up and it will be like this beautiful mix of orange from their wings and blue from the sky. And you can close your eyes and you can hear them them flying around. And it's it's such a beautiful sight and a beautiful sound. And so then they sort of like do this tag team. I mean, they keep having generations of more butterflies and sort of like this tag team race to Canada. And then they do it back to Mexico. Do I have that correct? Right. So the monarchs that I started my adventure with are not the same monarchs I ended with. I usually describe it as like a relay race where it takes about two to four generations to make it to Canada. And by the time it, the summer happens, they're not super migratory. They are often a lot more residential. They'll kind of just stay in one spot. And then when the fall happens, that generation is the generation that will fly all the way to Mexico. So it, it is a relay race in the sense that it's multi-generational, but they don't all do the same amount as, as we think of a relay race. So you said that when you were doing the journey, the middle of it is when you thought, okay, I need to make this into a, a book or write this down. So did you start writing at that point or did you wait until you were back or were you taking notes and jotting ideas? You know, sometimes people keep journals whenever they travel. So I'm curious about what that looked like for you. I kept a journal for all my adventures. I've kept journals. I hiked the Continental Divide Trail in 2009. That's a, a trail that runs through the Rocky Mountains from Mexico to Canada. And I would write every night on the back of one of my maps that we had printed out on these eight and a half by 11 sheets of, of paper. And it's so funny to look back at them because literally every entry is, I'm so tired. <laughs> and that's like pretty much all of it. But like that was my first big trip. And that really like got me in the habit of writing every night. And sometimes it's just bullet points. Sometimes it's just a haiku. But even just those like little moments, because it's the little details, right? It's the little tiny things that make the trip. And so you can forget them, but I, I try and write them down and then that will jog my memory. And I also take lots of photos. So that came in handy as well. 
as I was reading the book, I was thinking about how beautifully written it was. You just have such great imagery in there. But yet I'm guessing that you probably wouldn't consider yourself a writer first and foremost. I'm guessing that you probably call yourself a, you know, a wildlife biologist or a researcher. So I'm wondering, had you done other types of writing before this book? No, not really. I wrote a blog for my other adventures along with my friends and there would be paragraphs that were pretty good and you know people would say nice things but of course it's like well no one's gonna email you and say wow that was a terrible blog I read I mean people do that but they don't you know only in the comment section they don't usually email you that so I was practicing writing I I really do think it was the monarchs that taught me how to write and I began the writing process in in Mexico when I finished my trip, and I had no idea really what the story was about, right? Usually with a travel memoir or a memoir of any sort, you give yourself 20 years to sit on what happened and then reflect back and say, oh, wow, look at all the ways this changed me. And I just knew the monarchs didn't have that time, and I needed to write the book now. And so my process was just just write about everything. Don't care about sorting out the most important bits or the, the parts that were the most influential or even any themes. But as I was writing, those things kind of just came out and the parts that were the most interesting for me to write were the parts that seemed to be the most important. But the first draft was really terrible. I mean, I, but the monarchs were there. The monarchs were like, no, you can do better. This is, you just start from the beginning. And my first draft was, oh, it, it was twice as long as the book is now. And so I started the process of editing. And by the time I'd get to the end of the book, I'd be a better writer. So then when I went back to the beginning, I'd be like, oh, this is terrible. And I just kept doing that over and over again. I'd, as I would edit the book, I'd become a better writer. I'd go back to the beginning. I kept doing that. It was not a, a fast process. <laughs> a few times I would give myself a three-month break. I would be doing a, a seasonal job that was very intensive and I didn't have a, a whole lot of time to think about the book. And so I'd take a break and that was really helpful as well. Mm-hmm. But I I would imagine from start to finish, I probably went through it five times. So at that point, like when you were going back and editing and going through it with a fine tooth comb, did you know you were going to be published or were you just trying to make it the best you could be before you sold it? Yeah, I don't think I did it quite the quote typical way or normal way. I knew I wanted to write a book and I knew from my experience that the first of anything is kind of bad often. So my first presentations were bad. My first website was bad. Whenever you start a new project and you're learning a new skill, it's not usually the best. So I thought, well, I'll just get the bad one out of the way and I'm going to write this book and no one's going to ever read it, but that's okay. The point is to just do it. And so I wrote and edited a draft for probably about a year and a half or even two years. And then I started getting advice from some friends and they said, just start publishing articles. That will help you find a publisher. Mm. And I just got so lucky. I published an article. The second article I've ever published was in Orion Magazine. And it was just a a short little 800 word piece that was an excerpt from what I'd already written about a a moment that I had in, in Texas. And from that article, six publishers reached out to me and they wanted to see what the manuscript I had. And all of them were like, wow, you already have a manuscript? Because usually I think you start with just a few sample chapters and an outline. But I'd already had the structure. I had most of it already on paper. And from those, I ended up getting two offers. And I hemmed and hawed quite a bit. And I did reach out to a few agents thinking, oh, maybe I should go this route. And and then I was like, you know what? I didn't think anything was going to come with this. I don't need to invite rejection. <laughs> so why don't I just go with what I have? And there'll be other times to be rejected, but right now I'm not being rejected. So let's do this. And right. I chose Timber Press. Then the acquisition editor there, she gave me a round of edits of like big picture things. And then from there, I was assigned a copy editor named Julie, who's super awesome. She and I went through it a few times. I think that was really where the biggest help came was those this makes no sense, Sarah. I don't know what you're doing. And also, by the way, you cannot spell. (laughs) 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 Which is true. This book is a melding of lots of different genres. I mean, I think a lot of readers could find something to like in it, no matter what kind of genre they normally read. There's travel writing, nature writing. It's a memoir. There's environmental issues in here, science writing, sports writing, 
and adventure. So when you started writing it, what did you envision this book to be? And did it change the further along you got in the writing and editing process? It did change a lot. The beginning, I actually was trying to write a book for 10-year-olds. And I was like, I'm going to be creative. I had this whole idea where like each chapter was going to start with like this superhero villain and it was going to be a metaphor about doubt. And then later it was going to be a metaphor about climate change. And I was going to be like fighting them with literal punches and setting traps. (laughs) Boy, howdy, that did not work. That was like (laughs) one of those where you like imagine a beautiful mountain and then you get out your paintbrush and it's just not that. So I also realized when I was starting the first draft, I had a lot of anger in me. And it wasn't the appropriate place to, I needed to get the anger out. And of course, you don't want to give your anger to a 10 year old. (laughs) So I just realized maybe a month into it that this was not a book for kids. And I actually still really want to write a book for kids. I am trying to go the more traditional route. And I have, I'm working on the first five chapters and making a proposal and stuff for a kid's version of this book. But after that, I just was trying to write a book that I would want to read. And I'm not a huge fan of straight up travel memoirs. I I actually stresses me out to read most books about people cycling or, because a lot of times for me it's just like it's too much about the details. I don't really care exactly how many miles you went or exactly what town you went to or what the highway you were on was. That doesn't matter to me. I want to know how you felt, how those interactions affected you. And so I haven't read all that many travel books. And it's actually funny because right now I'm reading a travel book about a person that is on a long horse ride because I really want to go on a long horse trip and I'm learning how to ride a horse right now. It's giving me a whole new perspective on what it means to to write a travel book because I'm like, oh, maybe people actually want to know those specifics so that they know how to go on a bike tour. <laughs> but that's another day. I mean, that can be Googled. <laughs> And I think you get an idea of how to bike tour in the book, but you're not going to know what road I was on 95% of the time. So on this butter bike journey, you talk about your experiences, but there's also some social issues involved because like your decision to travel solo as a woman and camping along the way, and as well as your understanding that your privilege as a white woman allowed you that kind of freedom. So Can you tell us a little bit about your experiences traveling by yourself? I have just had pretty much only good experiences traveling. And people look at a white lady on a bike and think, oh my gosh, everyone's out to get you. And you're like, well, not really. Actually, everyone kind of wants to help me and protect me. And everyone assumes the best intentions in me. There's a story in the book where I just walk up to a random lady's house to ask for help. She was so nice that I started crying. (laughs) And soon I'm like, she's fixing me a sandwich and taking care of me. And I mentioned in an interview, I think, if I had been a black man and I knocked on her door, what would his experience have been? And I think in 2021, it is not appropriate to write an adventure book as a white person and not expressly say that this is not because I'm the bravest or the strongest or anything. A lot of this is because simply that I'm privileged. And I think about my friends in Mexico who could just quite frankly never do this trip because they can't get a passport or people of color in general that would just be too afraid for good reason to camp behind a church because people might call the cops and we don't know what would happen or we do know what what happens. Cops are called often. And so it was my responsibility to share my experience with people and to call to attention my privilege. Hopefully people will see travelers or or see people that don't look like them or that a person of color in general doesn't have to feel like that the reason they're not on this trip is being to do with them, but but more with our society, if that makes sense. So when I was reading your book, it made me understand ecology in a concrete way that I had just never thought about before. I guess I had never really linked that ridding our landscape of the wild fields and then going to all these planned neighborhoods with all these finely manicured lawns would also mean that the right types of plants, for example, the monarch butterfly would use to grow and thrive, those would disappear. 
And I thought I kind of understood ecosystems and interconnectedness, but I guess I just didn't relate it to my own behavior because I live in one of those types of planned neighborhoods that that we're talking about. So when you write about these scientific concepts, you write about them in a very accessible way. And I'm wondering, what are some of the tips that you used to make science relatable to everyone? Well, I think I've gotten a lot of practice doing that by giving presentations to kids. And I I don't Mm -hmm. say this in a condescending way. I say this in a way of if you can tell a story about science to a 10-year-old, then a lot of people are going to understand and it will become more accessible. So a a little bit of it was practice. If I talked about a science concept in front of 100 kindergartners and they all looked at me blankly well I I quickly would pivot and try again and then I'd get the like oh and okay okay that's the way to describe that so a lot of it's I think just practice and then I think it's it's sort of like squinting trying to see the the big picture and not get carried away in the details and in fact I often will forget the numbers which is difficult in interviews because they'll be like tell me about such and such. And I'll, I'll be like, oh, I do not want to mess up my numbers and I, and I will mess up the numbers. So for me, it's more like the feeling you get from learning that scientific fact, like learning about how the monarchs use the angle of the sun. And I forget exactly what the angle of the sun has to be to start the migration. But I know that when the angle is a certain degree in the sky, that will start the migration. And because the more north you go, the earlier that angle is achieved that that's why the migration starts earlier in the north and later in the south. And like, you just have to think about that feeling, that feeling of like, wow, everything has been figured out. Like nature is so perfect and we don't understand why and we don't understand if that's correlation or causation, but just trying to grasp the feeling of what it means to have these the science work so perfectly. So I felt like your book vacillated between being hopeful and being despondent about the future of our planet. And this might harken back to the anger that you were talking about before. So what experiences brought you the highs and what incidents brought you the lows on your journey? The lows were green grass and mowed land. The problem with seeing the world through the eyes of a butterfly is that you you see all of the potential lost to just people that are only thinking about humans. And I, I know you said that, that you live in a neighborhood that yeah. sometimes mm-hmm. feel like that. And I certainly do things where I only think about humans and none of us are doing it all right all the, all the time. But when you're by yourself on a bike and you're looking for monarchs, it's really highlighting all the times that they're not there. And it's just fields of poison corn or parking lots or green grass lawns it would just make you mad. And would first it would make me sad. And then that sadness would translate as anger. And then I would meet people every single day who would say things like, oh yeah, when I was a kid, I used to see lots of monarchs. What? <laughs> it's not fair that you got to see something beautiful and then you got to profit off of the earth. And that profit and that utilization of the earth meant that I no longer get to see monarchs in such vast numbers. And that the, the generation that's born today might not see them at all. And that's just not okay. And the fact that we can just say, ha ha ha, there used to be lots and now there's none and not do anything about it. Oh, that just gets under my skin. And and so to combat that, like if that was all it had been, I think I would have given up. I just couldn't have done it. It was too much for my soul and it just hurt too much. But then of course, right when you'd get to the low, you would meet someone that was being part of the solution and they would just lift you up and just push you down the road like a tailwind. And and I call these encounters medicine. So I, I would find medicine at, when I'd visit schools and talk to kids or visit their school gardens and, and share in a, in a little afternoon of looking for butterflies in their garden or when I would stay with people that had native plants in, in their yards or I stayed with farmers that were doing things differently and just seeing that there were people that cared and seeing that we are connected by our actions and that anything I do to help the monarch is helping all the people helping the monarchs. It really is a sense of connection and a sense of responsibility. That was my medicine and kept me going. I was just thinking, Sarah, about I live in a in a neighborhood that's the, the green grass and, you know, everybody sprays stuff. But I try to buy all native species to plant in my yard. And I do what I feel like I can do to a certain extent. 
but it occurred to me, like my husband complains about cutting grass and I'm like, who was it that decided our lawns have to look like this? Who made that rule? And why do we all go along with it? So maybe it's it's just easier to go, that's the way we've always done it. Our collective memory is very short. I think we get in habits too, right? It's like, oh, it's Saturday. I got to put chemicals on the lawn and then I've got to get this giant loud blower out and then the mower <laughs> out. And I want to, I really want to just anger all the people trying to sleep in. And, <laughs> and then, oh, I've got, I'm in a water and it's like, there's a drought, but whatever. It's really important that my grass is green. Right. And you, we could go into the psychology of showing the world how powerful you are and how rich you are and how you have everything together because look at how great your lawn is but also like we're trying to be good neighbors right when we we want our grass to look perfect because that adds to the aesthetic of the neighborhood and shows your neighbors that you care about your place and you want to make it look nice and so what we need are examples of other ways that that our yards can look nice and I have seen some of the most beautiful native gardens and they're just so exciting and they're so healthy for the neighborhood and they're so fun for the kids to play in and they're, they're fun for the adults to wander around in as well. And we just need those yeah. examples. And those people are brave because it is scary to go up against the lawn culture. But it needs yeah. to happen. Yeah. And it's going to happen. <laughs> I think we have to remind people that, there's, that we have lots of neighbors and they're not all humans. So right. we need yeah. to think about our bird neighbors and our butterfly neighbors and our frog neighbors. And when we start looking at the world through, through that lens then I think it becomes easier to rethink the lawn. Yeah. 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 So the primate biologist, Jane Goodall, gave a wonderful review of your book. And Jane Goodall brought attention to the lives of chimpanzees and how the public needs to pay more attention to animal welfare and, and conservation. So both of you have approached your respective work in a more humanistic way that has a broad appeal to the public. So do you think that the way female scientists or female nature writers, do you feel like that they approach this type of work differently from males who write or or do research in that way? Well, it is funny. If I think about my favorite nature writers, they are typically female. And for me, I think that and this happened in, at college a lot, is that people think that the only way to be taken seriously as a scientist is to be, quote, impartial and to not mm. have opinions and to not share those opinions with people. And in fact, in my acknowledgments, I think one professor, I will never forget, he was a bird biologist primarily, and he came to class and he literally brought a soapbox and he <laughs> set it in front of us all. And he said, as a scientist, I know as much as all the facts that I could possibly know right now about one of his projects was with shade grown coffee. I know about this. I know what we need to do to ensure that the birds are healthy. I know what we need to do to ensure that we have coffee so that the people can make a living. And I'm going to share with you my opinions because it's important that I can translate the science into something that leads to the best positive outcome for both the birds and the people that growing coffee. And he stood on his soapbox and he told us all about it. And he said, all you need to do is make sure that you are explaining that this is your opinion and you're backing it up with facts and with science. And that was so influential to me because I think it's so irresponsible for scientists to gather data and then do nothing with that because it's just lost and it's worthless. And we might as well not collect the data if we're not going to try and use it to spur change. Scientists know that the monarchs are in decline. Scientists know the, oh, many of the reasons why they're in decline and they know what we need to do. And, and for me, how could we not get on our soapboxes and, and preach the message of the monarch? I felt so much like a missionary on my trip sometimes, like <laughs> literally going from door to door, preaching the message of the monarch. But <laughs> I think it's important. I, and maybe because I'm a woman and because women have typically been shunned from science in a lot of ways, that I'm less concerned about being and staying in the good graces of the scientific world. I don't actually care at all what they think. And I also think that there's this amazing movement to blend science and to recognize that science is just one way of thinking. And we need to have multiple hats in order to really see and find solutions. You have a website and an organization called Beyond the Book. And so you've talked a little bit about talking with school groups and things, but tell us a little more about Beyond the Book and what that is about. Well, <laughs> there's like two answers and one is so on 
exciting, which is like I got tired of buying domains for each trip I was on. (laughs) (laughs) I should not say this, but I did a bike tour to 49 states with friends and we bought bike49.org. And then I did a trip from Bolivia to Texas and I bought spoonintheroad.org. And then I canoed the Missouri River and bought ontheriver.org. And I got tired of that. And I said, all these trips have this this focus, right? This focus of going on adventures, learning to see the world in new ways, and in most of the cases, connecting my adventures to schools and giving kids the opportunity to be part of the trip, but with either presentations, with videos, with field trips even. And I kept thinking, what what could I name this? What would be a great domain name? <laughs> and Beyond Books was taken. So I actually am really happy with that because it became beyond a book. And the message is, yes, read lots of books, but you can't learn everything you need to know from a book, right? You can't read a book about biking and know how to ride a bike. You can read a book about biking, get really excited, get some ideas, get some inspiration, and then you have to get on a bike. And that's where the real learning happens. And it's the same with the butterfly. You can learn a bunch about the butterfly. You can become amazed by them. You can start to cue in your eyes to different aspects of their ecology. And then you've got to crawl around in the ditch. And then that's that's really where the connections are made and where the lessons are learned. And so I hope that, that my trips can inspire people to read books, take that step, and then also go out and have adventures of their own. Do you have more adventures planned and more books that you want to write? I mean, yeah, of course it would be so fun. I would love if this could be just my life and we'll see how things go. But I always have ideas simmering and and often questions like this will drag them out of me and then they become more and more of a reality every time I say them. And the two that I'm talking about the most that I think are the, the most of a reality right now, one is I really want to do what I'm calling an amphibious adventure. That's so amphibious as on land and water, just like an amphibian or frog. And I would really love to do a big trip of some sort that I could could combine canoeing and rafting, sailing, and then land hiking and, and biking. And all of it would be through the lens of amphibians. There's so many amazing amphibians out there and I want to discover them all. I want to see them all. And I know that going out to find them would, it would just invite so much adventure. And then the other one that I'm really excited about that only has become a reality in the last few months, really, is a horse ride across Mexico. And I, I really want to do it studying beans. I love beans. I've, I've lived in Mexico four winters now. And every March, like right around my birthday, like usually like March 12th, my family that I stay with there, they plant their beans. I, and I always help them every time I can. And their beans are so beautiful. They're like these big purple beans that are super meaty and wonderful. And I'm thinking, oh, every family and every mountaintop in Mexico is going to have a little bit different bean. And I want to ride a horse and see them all. That is not what I expected you to say. When you you said you were going to ride a horse across Mexico, I I did not envision you saying, and I'm going to do it through the lens of beans. But I I kind of love it. I know. (laughs) That sounds awesome. I'm learning how to ride a horse. And I watched this awesome movie about using wild Mustangs. There's way too many wild Mustangs on our public land. And so I want to get a wild Mustang and going to name them Frijol, which is bean in Spanish. And we're going to go for it. <laughs> There's some kinks to work out still, right? Like I need to learn how to ride a horse and train a lot of <laughs> But like, that's kind of the point, right? Is like, I didn't actually know that much about monarchs when I started. I knew a lot about bike touring. That one wasn't much of a, of a worry. But at one point I didn't know much about bike touring and you really do just need to go out and learn and you'll make mistakes and that's okay. And all those mistakes just become stories like, oh, yeah, remember that time I didn't know that if you camp in a public park, you should think about where the sprinklers are because you'll wake <laughs> up at five in the morning to like a sopping wet bag because you're a great sleeper and you didn't realize that it was the sprinklers were on until your bag was just a sloppy mess. OK, well, that stinks. That was terrible for like three days while it dried. But now it's a good story. I think that idea of, you know, you can't learn everything from a book is really important. 
you know, you talk about going into schools. Gosh, kids get like tested nearly to death. I'm not 100% convinced that that's the most effective way. And so I feel like your book has a lot of reverberations into other areas that it would make people think about that don't really have necessarily anything to do with bikes or butterflies, but just that idea of science and where you learn and how you learn. I I think there's um, all sorts of interesting things about that. This book is proof of that. You're going to be so much more motivated to learn when you're doing something that you love. Well, of course, kids don't care where Texas is if they're not from Texas. Right. But then it's like, oh, the monarchs are in Texas right now. Where is Texas? Get me a map. Right. Like the teachers are all like, simmer down. There's plenty of maps for everyone. And the kids are like, (laughs) I want more maps. (laughs) And so let's bring real world stuff into the classroom. Let's make learning exciting. And if a kid isn't obsessed with monarchs, there's going to be something that they're interested in. And we need to find those things. And then let them lead their own learning. And I mean, you said that you're not 100% convinced that testing and all that is what kids need. I am 100% convinced it's not what they need. And (laughs) in fact, in quarantine with COVID, I'm staying on this little plot of land with with some friends and we started a little outdoor nature school and it was 100% outdoors. There's usually about 10 kids and I always tell them, like, I'm not the teacher. The trees are the teachers. The cicadas are the teachers. The tadpoles are the teachers. And that's where learning really needs to go. All right. Well, we are going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're all going to talk about what we're reading. We are back with Sarah Dykeman and with Carrie. And Carrie, what have you been reading at the end of this school year when it's all tying up? I feel like it ties in really well with Sarah being our guest. I started listening to the audiobook version of The Birch Bark House by Louise Erdrich. I have read several of her books. She's a Native American author. And this is the story of a young Native American girl and her family. And I'm about 70% of the way done. And her family has just recently gone through smallpox. And it was horrible. And I won't say what happens to everybody in her family, but you can probably guess. But this book, I don't know. I mean, I just sort of love the story of it. She talks about her father, Day Day, and she talks about her mother and her siblings and her grandmother. And then there's another grandmotherly character. And I think just the way this book describes how closely aligned Native Americans were with the land and with nature, like thanking nature for what it provides to us, that was part of what they did. They would apologize to an animal because they would say, we need you to survive. And so I just think that mindset, the fact that humans are an animal, you know, even though we like to think that we're not and that we're above animals, we are mammals, we are animals, and we're very much tied in with the world around us. So even though, like I said, I mean, the the family just had smallpox and that wasn't a happy event, but it's also just sort of a gentle story that I'm really enjoying listening to. Okay. I I have two questions. First of all, is this a middle grade book or is it for adults? Because the last one you talked about by her was an adult book. This is for, I would say probably fourth grade and up. It's not set like in modern time. No, it's set back when the French traders, when they would sell beaver skins and and stuff. You know, if I have a book, then I end up Googling it, but I'm listening to the story and I don't really... You I don't, don't really, research those things. I don't much. research, but it but it's an Ojibwe community, and I think the time frame is like 1847 near Lake Superior. And how are you finding it compared to her adult focused fiction? I mean, it's just as wonderfully written. All of her books that I have read are are very much focused on the Native American stories, you know, with that the lens on her community. 
you know, we talk about books, are they mirrors or are they windows? And I'm not Native American. And so for me, it's a window into a world that that I find really interesting, in part because it's so, you know, like we were talking about the lawns, you know, Uh, very much people are just disconnected, I think, more than they have been in the past from nature. For me, at least, I find it very soothing to hear about what seems to me to be a nicer way of engaging with the world. Sarah, what have you been reading? Well, I have been reading a lot of books about horses. (laughs) (laughs) Turns out there's a lot there. There's a really amazing author, and his name is Mark Rashid. And he has written a bunch of books about horses. And it's really about seeing the world through the perspective of a horse and really learning a bunch of lessons by working with horses, lessons in slowing down and empathy and patience. Uh, They're they're really quite good. I was a little skeptical of the first one, but he's written three. I've read two of the three already. But then, you know, listening to Carrie, I actually would love to shout out a book that, that probably everyone already knows, but it's my favorite book. And halfway through my presentation with my book, I want to just be like, you know what, actually, don't buy my book, buy Braiding Sweetgrass. (laughs) <laughs> braiding sweet grass and yeah. braiding sweet grass by robin wall kimmer i did the most ridiculous thing and i hope this doesn't come off as egotistical but on my copy i turned it over and you know how people like praise the back of books <laughs> i wrote my own praise on it that's <laughs> and it, awesome and i don't have it on with me right now but it was something like every time someone reads this book the world's a better place or something i love that book it makes me cry and it makes me have hope and I wish that I was a prestigious enough author that I could get away and change grammar like the way Robin Wall Kimmer is doing. She has two things that I love and that she does in her book. And one is she never refers to a creature as it. She actually has suggested and uses the word key. That word traces back to her Potawatomi language. And I think it means earth. So she refers to trees and to animals and to plants, to non-more than human creatures as key. And I just love that perspective. She talks about how you would never see your grandmother and say, look, it's cooking cookies because we want to give our grandmother respect. That would just feel so gross. But then we see a butterfly and we're like, whoa, look, it's beautiful. Or, oh, it's mm-hmm. migrating. And she actually suggests the the plural of key would be kin. And how beautiful would it be if you see a monarch and you said, oh, look, kin is migrating. Or, oh, kin has returned. And it makes me choke up every time. And I tried to never use the word it, but in my book, most of the time I could get away with it by knowing if it was either male or female. And sometimes I honestly didn't know, but I'm like, I can't call this butterfly an it. I'll just say it was a she. I think there's a lot of lessons that English tell us without us even knowing about status and about what's important through our language. And I think Robin Wall Kimmer and Braiding Sweetgrass just make that abundantly clear in such a beautiful way. All right. Well, Amy, what have you been reading? So I read a book called Late Migrations, A Natural History of Love and Loss, and it's by an author named Margaret Renkel. And this is a book of essays. It combines the author's love of nature with the story of her life and small snippets. So Margaret Rinkle is an author, but she's also the former opinion columnist for the New York Times, and she lives in Nashville, Tennessee. And her weekly opinion column focused on nature, politics, and culture. And I heard this author give a book talk at the Southern Festival of the Book couple years ago in Nashville. And initially, I wasn't super drawn to reading this book, But once I heard her speak about it, she was doing the book talk with Ann Patchett, and she was such a relatable and down-to-earth speaker, and she totally changed my mind. So in this collection, she weaves together essays about the natural world and also about family stories and memories growing up. And she was lucky enough to know her great-grandmother and her grandparents on both sides, and so you get little snippets of her growing up. and. I think that Margaret Rankle would describe herself as a backyard naturalist. She isn't professionally educated in that, but she has a passionate interest in it and has taught herself. And so the personal essays in this book started with a blog that she was keeping when her parents and her in-laws 
their health started to decline and she needed to start helping her in-laws and parents. And she said that the nature essays came in because she found comfort from her grief by looking at the natural world. And there's also artwork in this book that was created by her brother. I would say that the writing in this book, to me anyway, was achingly beautiful. And except for a few, these essays are fairly short and they're easy to read. I'm about 75% of the way through the book. My only caveat is that I feel as a reader, a little confusion about whether the essays that are focused on nature and her personal essays are supposed to tie together in some way. I'm left wondering if I'm supposed to be seeing a thread that ties the natural to the family. And it could be something as simple as just like a cycle of life, but it hasn't affected my enjoyment of the book. Originally, the author said she'd wanted to be a poet, but decided she just didn't have the focus to succeed as a poet. But you can totally see her poetic sensibility in her writing. And she just has gorgeous imagery. And I'm going to read just one little passage from it. And this particular little essay is titled, Things I Knew When I Was Six. She grew up in the lower part of Alabama, and this is 1967. Flowers that bloom in the garden are called flowers, and flowers that bloom in the vacant lot are called weeds. A grasshopper leaping away from your feet in the vacant lot sounds exactly like a rattlesnake coiled next to your feet in the vacant lot. There is no worm hiding in the raised pink circle of skin that your grandmother calls ringworm. From the top of a loblolly pine, your whole neighborhood looks simple and shabby and small. When you dare your little brother to break a big rule, your brother is not the one who gets in trouble. It's a mistake to play leapfrog with a kid who's bigger than you. The roly-poly and the centipede both have lovely, tickling feet, but the centipede will bite and the roly-poly will only roll away. If your mother's crying and cannot stop, there's a little blue pill in the bathroom that will help her sleep. Hmm. So that one was titled Things I Knew When I Was Six. That one is a nice melding of both the natural and her family, but most of them are like one or the other. I really enjoyed this book, but it's a very quiet book. So it's not a lot happens. It's not going to be for everyone. It's a book of observation, observing the life around us, and then observing her own life and her own family. But I found it really soothing to read. And the combination of reading this book and reading your book, Sarah, makes me want to strive just to be more aware of the natural world around me. I mean, I feel like I pay attention to it more than the average person, but still not as much as I probably need to. Well, that was such a beautiful thing you just read. And I love the title because it's so true. Kids already know so much, especially about nature. And then we like try and teach that out of us. We want to, you know, it's like, no, you got to stay inside. And there's so much joy to be had. And we're missing out on it because we are not climbing trees and we're not listening to the grasshoppers and watching the rabbits. So lots of lessons there. Sure. We are back with Sarah Dykeman, and she's going to answer her three about me. So as a seasonal amphibian researcher, what is it you find appealing about these creatures? And what is something interesting about them that most people don't know? I think amphibians are just so cute. If you look at a little toad, their little (laughs) face, they're just like so much attitude. They're like, why are you looking at me? And (laughs) I love that they go unnoticed often. I love that. They're transformational, that that a tadpole will be an herbivore that breathes through its lungs and has a tail and lives in water. And then all this this metamorphosis happens and all of a sudden there's a hopping frog. That just is amazing. And something that people don't know, I study a frog in the Sierra, the mountains of California, called the mountain yellowleg frog. And their tadpoles take three years to develop. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So the first year they're just these really tiny little tadpoles and then the next year they'll grow and those are the ones you see. I my boss is always like, "You didn't see the first years." And I'm like, "I'm sorry, they're small." <laughs> and then by the third year they'll get their legs and then usually metamorphose out. But it's cold in the mountains, so you look at this little tadpole and you're like, "You've survived 3 years in the mountains?" Wow. And Every time I see a a mountain yellow leg frog, I am kind of blown away that they exist at all. 
Do they have long lifespans? Because you would think if it takes them three years to outgrow the tadpole period of their lives that they would live to like 20 or something. I'm sure some could live that long. It's probably more in the, the teens. And then the, the problem with the Mountain Yellow Lake frogs is that, pe- that people introduced trout in the 1800s because they called mm. the creeks, quote, barren. And they were like, we got to fix these creeks. And of course, mm. the fish eat all of the the tadpoles. And oh. so it's hard to escape a fish for three years. And mm-hmm. so anytime you see fish, you'll no longer see mountain yellow frogs and they're on, they're endangered. Mm-hmm. But there's efforts to remove fish and hopefully we can give them a fighting chance. So question number two, on your butter bike adventure, and I love that term, butter bike, <laughs> you would sometimes stay with people along the way and you would leave them a little postcard sized watercolor painting as a thank you. And so I'm wondering, how did you learn to watercolor and what is the key to doing watercolors in miniature? like that? Well, I started watercoloring as thank you cards on on my Missouri River trip. I thought, oh, isn't it clever? I'll use Missouri River water to paint. And and also, it's a lot easier to carry watercolor supplies than it is just about any other art medium other than maybe pencils. But it's lightweight and small. And so I learned by practicing. And my first ones were usually quite bad. And I still paint bad ones. Um, But I've painted probably, oh, I don't even know, 800, 1,000 monarchs. I'm pretty fast at painting a monarch now. And they're miniature just so I have to carry less paper. They're about the size of a postcard usually. And I don't paint other watercolor artists do. I don't have the same technique. But there's some beautiful saying that I'm going to butcher that's like, your, your limitation becomes your style. And so I don't know how to do it like a lot of watercolor people do. But it's become my style to do it to do it my way, and it works. Did you always have like a little bit of artistic ability? Because I think even if I practiced, <laughs> <laughs> I don't have that kind of artistic ability that I could make a monarch butterfly look like a monarch butterfly. Oh, I, I bet you could, but or you just have a really cool style. I'm I'm adopting that limitation becomes your style. I just started teaching myself banjo. So (laughs) I'm totally adopting that with my banjo technique or lack thereof. All right. Question number three, in one of your many adventures, you canoed from Montana to the Gulf of Mexico via the Missouri and Mississippi rivers as part of a four person team. So what was one of the top experiences from this journey that sticks in your mind? Oh, there's so many. It was such an amazing trip. And the moment that just popped into my mind as you asked that question was the first week. We started by walking from the top of a mountain called Triple Divide Peak. And then we actually pedaled with our canoes attached to our bikes for about a day until the the river was wide enough. And (laughs) we put our canoes in the water. We had two canoes and we strap everything in. And then there was only one of the the four of us knew how to canoe. (laughs) He'd seen us get in a canoe to our one practice on this lake. And he stops and he's like, okay, before you get in the canoe, let let me show you how to get in the canoe. (laughs) And I remember we were all just standing there being like, wait, we don't even know how to get in a canoe. (laughs) (laughs) What have we signed up for? (laughs) But we learned along the way. He, He taught us everything we know and had a lot of practice and. And we got a, a lot better. Okay. So did I hear you right that you strapped your canoe to your bike? Yeah, we decided my bicycle has not only bikes probably taken me about 30,000 miles, but it's also canoed the Missouri River. So we had two big canoes and we would, after all our gear was in, we'd each put two bikes on each canoe. And we had a, a pack that if we ever capsized, we were all willing to see our bikes sink to the bottom of the river because oh, wow. we probably weren't going to get them back up with, with the bikes on there. But the canoes were super sturdy and all went well. And it wasn't probably the best for the bike to get, you know, be wet and sandy all the time. But it was nice when we, we had trailers. So we'd be able to pull our bikes to schools and give presentations along the way. Wow. That's amazing. You have had some really amazing adventures, Sarah. This this was fun. This is part of the adventure, right? The the book and doing interviews. This is all all part of the fun. So it's a, a new type of adventure that's that I'm getting to, to go on now. Thank you so much, and I look forward to seeing what you do next. 
If you would like to find out more about Sarah's past, present, and future adventures, go to her website at www.beyondabook.org. Did you know you can find a list of all the books, podcasts, movies, and TV shows we talk about on our website? You don't need to have a pencil and paper sitting right next to you while you're listening to write down all the titles you hear us mention. For show notes for any episode, go to our website at perksofbeingabooklover.com. The show notes are also included on the description of the episode on your podcast player. Thanks for joining us this week. Follow us on Facebook at The Perks of Being a Book Lover or on Instagram at Perks of Being a Book Lover Pod to see what we're up to. Finally, a huge thank you to Forward Radio 106.5 FM, a grassroots community radio station in Louisville, Kentucky. You can find our show there, live or in archives, at forwardradio.org.